Amen. That is our desire, is it not, to be found to be blameless in and until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we desire to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes only through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. And it's through God's word that he makes us more like Christ. We receive Christ's righteousness when we come to Christ in salvation, but then it's through God's word that we are sanctified. And as we turn our attention to God's word today, we're going to consider an idea in line with that passage from Philippians 1 about a participation in the gospel. So open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we'll be concluding our mini-series, three weeks looking at verses 1 through 10, um, focusing in on verses 6 through 10 this morning. Uh, You may recall the last two weeks we have begun by looking at verses 1 through 3 as Paul recounts his time at the Jerusalem Council, which is also recorded in Acts chapter 15. He says that he began that by going before these men, these leaders of the Jerusalem church, and he submitted to them. He proclaimed to them the gospel that he was proclaiming among the Gentiles as he was out sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting churches. He came before these men and he submitted to them his testimony of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 4 and 5, we saw this idea that there are indeed false brethren. There are false teachers who come in and seek to deceive and to lead away and to lead into false religion. We saw that we must be able to define these types of false brethren, and we must resist them. Now, the third component of this, we've kind of looked at this under the heading of faithful battles for the true gospel. And so the third heading we'll look at, the testimony of the true gospel, the description of false brethren, false teachers. And then thirdly, we want to look at the idea of biblical gospel partnerships. In Philippians 1, Paul talked about the Philippians' participation in the gospel. So we want to consider the idea of biblical gospel partnerships, biblical church partnerships. So let's read our text, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, with a specific mind to verses 6 through 10, where we will cast our, our time and our attention this morning. So this is the word of the living God. Paul writes, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted 
with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now before your throne of grace. Lord, thankful that your word does indeed endure forever. We're thankful, Lord, that your promises are sure and true. We thank you that you have a great loving kindness that you have revealed to those of us who you have called to be your children in and through Christ. We thank you, as was read earlier, that we have abundant redemption in Christ, that we are freed from the power and the penalty and one day the presence of sin. And now, Lord, as we come to our time of studying your word, God, we know that we must have your help if you're going to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in and among us today. Lord God, we need your spirit to illuminate our minds. We need your, your word through the working of your spirit to humble and purge and purify our hearts. Lord, we need your spirit through the teaching and preaching of your word to make us wise both unto salvation and unto the application of all of the truth of your word. Lord God, we live in difficult and trying days. And we know that we must hold firmly to the truth of your word and most highly the glorious truth of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, reveal Christ to us today as we study and reveal the specific truths that you would have for us to understand and apply today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to apply the truth. Lord, help us to focus our minds and our hearts on, not on what I am saying, but on what your spirit would teach us through the word. Lord, we pray this all to your praise and your honor and your glory. And I pray this in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So a few weeks ago at the outset of looking at verses 1 through 10, we determined that we were looking at how to battle for the true gospel. That we do that by aligning ourselves with fellow faithful saints as we proclaim the gospel and as we make war against the deceitful schemes of false brethren and false teachers. Those false brethren and false teachers are ultimately instruments and agents of Satan. We know indeed that we do fight a war, 
this spiritual life that we are walking in while we have our short, short period on earth is a spiritual warfare. There is a real enemy. We must take our stand against that enemy. One of those enemies that we see, as we spoke about a couple weeks ago, is the culture around us. Our culture is given over unto sin. It's given over unto unrighteousness, even the celebration of sin and unrighteousness. So we know that we must prepare ourselves to fight battles for the truth. We must prepare ourselves to be faithful in fighting those battles. We don't only fight, but we must fight faithfully. We must fight in accordance with and in submission to what is laid forth in Scripture. That means that we are not to be quarrelsome. We are not to go looking for a fight or an argument. But as Clark mentioned this morning, there is a time to stand up. When the gospel is being undercut, when the truths of Scripture are being attacked, we must stand and defend, and defend by proclaiming the truth of God's Word. We must stand against evil and deceit and the general attack of the world against God's Word. God's Word promises us that these attacks will only proceed from bad to worse. It is going to get worse before it gets better in the way of the evil that is around us. We must, we must, the first instrument that we must use in this fight, in this battle, is the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must understand and have a, a good, solid, true understanding of both the message and the application of the gospel. It's not enough that we just know who Jesus was, and what he did, but we must bring ourselves in submission to that truth and to Jesus as our Lord. We must know both the message and its proper application. For a tool or an instrument is of no use if you don't know how to use it, or even if you do know how to use it and you don't use it properly. Probably everybody in here knows how to use a hammer. If you turn a hammer around backwards and use the claw end to try to hammer a nail, it's not going to work or it's going to work very poorly, and you're going to have a poorly driven nail that does not do its proper function. So it is with the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. You must know it, you must know how to use it, and then you must properly apply that knowledge. The second thing that we've considered in this idea of our, of our battle and our war is the deceitful scheming of these false teachers and false brethren. We saw that they ultimately seek to bring us into bondage to their worldly philosophies and their false religions. That's what ultimately what Paul and the Galatians were facing was a people who wanted to bring them under a false and non-saving religion. The duty of the church in response to such false brethren and false teachers is exactly what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verses 13 and 14, he said, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. But let's not miss verse 14 there. He also said, Let all that you do be done in love. So that is our ultimate battle when we're faced with false teachers, 
with false brethren, when we fight on this spiritual battlefield, we stand firm. We must be strong. We must indeed act like men, men who will go to war and lay their lives down to fight that battle and to win that war. But we do so not as those blindly engaging in combat, but those who want to do everything firstly for love of God and then love of others. We love God. We fight battles for him. We love others. We love the souls of those around us, and we fight for their sake. So that is verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 2. There's a final component of this idea of faithful battles for the truth to look at. It's a very broad component, and again, we'll look at it under the heading of biblical gospel partnerships. Biblical gospel partnerships, biblical church partnerships, if you would. That's essentially Paul was going around planting churches, and those churches were joining together in partnership with the Jerusalem church, the mother church there in Jerusalem. There's much discussion in our day of um, denominations, of parachurch ministries. There are discussions of who we can and cannot align ourselves with as we fight the battle for the gospel and for the truth. And dear friends, we must look to the scriptures and to the scriptures alone as our guide. That's what we intend to do today in these verses. Look at the idea of what a true church partnership should look like and should be grounded upon. This is not the only passage in Scripture that addresses the idea of partnering together, but man, it's a broad passage. It is a passage that shows us what should be the root and all the way up to the application. Paul even talks about financially supporting one another as we get to the end of this. So he covers a, a long and a, and a broad gamut of what good, healthy, biblical church partnerships look like. So beginning at verse 6, verse 6 is kind of really the root of this. We've got to understand what Paul is saying here to be able to understand the rest of this passage. He begins by saying that those who are of high reputation, well, those who are of reputation, he says at the end of the verse, contributed Nothing to me. So we've got to understand this. Who are those of high reputation? What does Paul mean when he says they contributed nothing to me? Those are, uh, I think, kind of confusing statements on the surface. So let's dig in and look at them. Firstly, let's answer the question, are who are these people who are of high reputation? Because Paul says, you know, what, what they were made no difference to me because God shows no partiality. So is he talking about the Judaizers, or is he talking about the church leaders? I think the context gives us some clues. He says in verse 2, that it's because of this revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach. He submitted to those who were of high reputation the gospel. So think back to Acts 15. If we were to read all the way through Acts 15, the first 25 or so verses, we would get a good picture of who Paul went and spoke to. There may have been a few Judaizers in that camp, but he went and was among those who were naming the name of Christ. He went and and spoke of those who who were followers of Christ, who did not reject Christ, who were not trying to add works to faith to gain salvation. In verse 9 of our passage this morning, he He talks about James and Cephas and John and says that they were reputed to be pillars. 
They were reputed, it's the same word that we're talking about, to be pillars. Pillars of what? Pillars of the church. So who are these men of high reputation that Paul went and submitted his gospel proclamation to? Surely, I think, friends, we can see from all of this context that it was indeed these brothers, these leaders of the church, James and Peter and John and, and the other men they talked about in Acts 15 talks about elders, you know, those who were maybe leaders of Judaism who had converted to Christianity and were then leaders in the church. And so these who are of high reputation, again, are surely these men, along with the other leading men of the church. Now, if you are reading along in the NAS, we get to the end of verse 6, and he says that they contributed nothing to me. You guys know I love the NAS, but I think it gets this translation wrong. If you have, there were, there were a few other translations that translate this, this term better. The ESV specifically, it translated, translates this to say that these men added nothing to me. Paul says, I went to these men of high reputation, I proclaimed my gospel to them, and they added nothing to me. They added nothing to the gospel that Paul had submitted to him. You know, it almost sounds like a negative in the first place. They contributed nothing to me. They gave me nothing. They didn't help me. But then you understand the accurate translation of it. They added nothing to me. They had nothing to say. They said, Paul, you've got the gospel right. We are in alignment. Again, you can go read Acts 15 and see that that was the outworking and the results of this Jerusalem council. So what was the argument um, that Paul was making to the Galatians? What was the argument being made during the Jerusalem council? Is this idea that works of the law had to be added to faith for salvation, for justification. What does Paul say about these men of reputation? They added nothing to me. I preached this gospel where I said, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus did, and you believe on him, you believe in him, and you will be saved. Not you believe in him and add these works and these rituals, but you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That was his message, and they added nothing to it. They, they gave it their stamp of approval, saying, yes, that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, who are these men that are mentioned here? You've got James, the half-brother of Jesus. You have Peter and you have John, these, these men who were his inner circle. If anybody is going to raise a flag and say, no, that's not what Jesus taught, it would be those men. And yet Paul says they added nothing. They had nothing to say. They said, bingo, you've nailed it. That is the gospel. So the first and the most critical point when we consider gospel partnerships is that there must be full convictional agreement on the idea of justification by faith alone. There must be full convictional agreement on the idea and the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And really on the gospel as a whole and the way of salvation and how salvation applies, there must be this full agreement where if we're going to partner together for the sake of the gospel, we've got to proclaim the same message. We've got to proclaim the same way of being saved and the same results of being saved. If one person holds to a lawless version of salvation where you are free to go do whatever you want after you're saved, and one person holds to a, 
a legalistic view of you have to be saved and then keep rule X, Y, and Z to be saved. Those of us who hold to the truth of that gospel, we can't partner with either side because we are not in full convictional agreement. So that's the first and, again, the most critical point to to gospel and to church partnerships is we must be on the same page regarding salvation, regarding the gospel, regarding the application of the gospel. And then Paul continues on. He makes this parenthetical statement in verse 6. It says, what they were, these men of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. Read that, and that's a pretty strong statement. It sounds like he's kind of trying to make a point. And he is trying to make a point, but I want to consider that and listen to MacArthur's commentary here because I think MacArthur makes helpful points. He said, Paul was not depreciating those godly men. He respected them, or he would not have sought a private audience with them, nor would he have sought their public confirmation so that people would know he was not running in vain. So while Paul is very clear that these men's reputation was ultimately meaningless to him as far as the revelation that he had received from Christ. As MacArthur points out, he did care deeply about these men's opinions and their idea because he wanted a good and a true and a faithful partnership. He was not arrogantly stating that he did not need accountability. He was not saying that he did not want agreement from these men, but rather that the Lord does not consider our reputation among men. Again, God shows no partiality. What these men were makes no difference before God, whether men of high repute or of low reputation is meaningless before God. You remember the story from um, when Samuel was seeking to, to anoint the next king of Israel. He went around and he looked, and he was looking for these kingly men. And finally, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, recorded there in Scripture, it says that God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So while Samuel was looking at the outer appearance of these men to see who would be the next king, The Lord was looking at the heart. The Lord was looking for a man after his own heart. So it is here what Paul is saying. He's saying the Lord doesn't care about the reputation of these men. The Lord cares if they are men after his own heart. He shows no partiality among them. The Lord considers the heart and the actions. You know, this phrase could be literally translated to say that the Lord does not receive a face. The Lord does not take us at face in external value. The the Lord is not concerned with what we bring to him. The Lord is not concerned with what we bring to the table because it is the Lord who imparts everything that we need to us. So you may bring absolutely nothing to the table, and in fact, dear friends, you do. I do. We bring nothing to the table because the Lord imparts everything to us and he leaves us all the instructions we need. So what does this have to do with Paul's letter and his gospel ministry? He's making the point that there's no difference between him and the other apostles. He's saying, you know, God does not care that these men walked right alongside of Jesus 
and I was a Jew seeking to destroy the church before the Lord saved me. Uh, our, our past lives are of no, no thing to the Lord because the Lord is going to empower and entrust us to do the work that he wants us to do. God has called and entrusted each of these men as ministers of the gospel. The reputation of Peter and James and John do not give them some t- sort of hierarchical authority over Paul. They are all apostles. And that's exactly then what Paul explains in verses 7 and 8. He says, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. What we see is that there is a, a very clear and level playing field between these men who are called as ministers of the gospel. Now make no mistake, the Lord does grant broader ministries to some than to others. There is much to be said for those who prove faithful over decades and decades and decades of ministry. However, Paul's clear point is that there is no greater authority given to one minister over another, provided they are being faithful to the truth of God's word. How is this so? How is there no authority when Peter was Jesus' closest friend and Paul at the time that Jesus was on earth was a hater of Jesus and then even after Jesus died wanted to destroy the church? How is there no authority structure between them? Well, consider the two things that Paul points out. He says that they are entrusted with the same gospel, that they are empowered by the same God, by the same Spirit. Paul says effectively that he and Peter are equals, not because of their similar qualifications, but because they preach the same message. And they preach the same message under the same head. Who is that same head? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So they're equals because they serve the same God and they preach the same message. It's important to understand here that, that no man, no, no follower of Christ from the most credentialed to the least credentialed finds any authority within himself or herself. Our ministry of the gospel is authoritative because of the author of our message and because of the spirit who goes out and brings power and makes effective that proclamation. Faithful gospel partnerships, faithful church partnerships must realize this. Faithful churches must realize this. We must realize it both in word and in practice. It does no good to offer lip service to this, to say, yeah, absolutely, anybody who proclaims the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel is on equal playing field because God and his word are our authority. But then to go out and practice something else, to go out and show some sort of partiality because of someone's education or experience or the breadth of their ministry. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we don't give honor to whom honor is due, that we don't have humble hearts and show deference to those who are more theologically trained or who have proven 
more faithful over a longer term to the truth of God's word. For surely those people are worthy of honor. They're worthy of respect. They're worthy to be listened to. But we must understand that those things are not reasons to elevate someone and their experience or their past over the authority of God's word. As Paul said in chapter 1, whether it's me or an angel from heaven who comes to you and preaches a different gospel, if we do so, we are to be accursed. If we deviate from the truth, it doesn't matter if it is an apostle who says, I've come with this revelation from Christ. If it is a different gospel than the gospel revealed in Scripture, that person is to be rejected, and that person will be, by the Lord, condemned unless they come and return and submit to Christ. Men and ministries can fall. Men and ministries can fail. Men and ministries can even deceive. Dear friends, there's much evidence of all of these things in, in the evangelical world over the past several years. But though men and ministries can fall and fail and deceive, we must know, we must remember, and we must find hope and power in the fact that the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord is faithful. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. It is everlasting. It's in this word that we trust. It is to this word that we must submit. It is in this word that all authority and all truth and all power is found. Paul says he's been called to preach the same gospel under the same authority, and he does so with the same power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who effectually worked in Peter and who effectually worked through him in their ministries. And so what was the response? Paul says, I submitted this to them. They added nothing to me. And what was the response? Verse 9, he says, In recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the response was they gave the right hand of fellowship. They agreed to partner together in the service of the Lord, in the planting and shepherding and pastoring of churches. So there are a few things to pick up here. Firstly, he says they extended to us the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship in Paul's day would have been a show of equality and friendship and partnership. Paul says that they agreed that we are on equal playing fields and that we are going to go out and partner in doing the same work. Paul says that it is based on the content of his message and the evidence of his calling and empowering by God that these leaders of the Jerusalem church extended him the hand of fellowship is indeed both the content of his message and the evidential calling of his life that led to this partnering. Think about this. Some may have the gospel right, but their lives do not confirm that we should join together with them. Likewise, someone may give a very, a very convincing evidence of a calling from God, but their proclamation of the gospel, their proclamation of the truth of God's word, those undergirding doctrines of the good news of Christ may not be in submission to the scriptures. 
Those must not be admitted into a gospel fellowship. It's got to be both the calling of the Lord and the holding to the truth of God's word. Paul would later tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that Timothy needs to pay close attention both to his life and to his teaching. Pay close attention, Timothy, to your life and to your teaching. People and churches must take care to guard both the witness of their deeds and their fidelity to the truth of God's word. Right doctrine and a God-ordained calling must always be undergirded and confirmed by holiness of life. You may have everything going for you, but if you don't walk with the Lord your God in a called-out, separate, holy nature, then you're giving evidence that you are not walking in submission to Him. You may walk in a good and convincing way for a period, but if the whole of your life is not trending towards, moving towards holiness, then, then you have no business partnering with a faithful church. As a church who desires to be faithful, we have no business partnering with those who don't give these evidences of being in Christ and with Christ and to, in submission to Christ. And Paul says, based on his message and his life, these pillars of the church, these leaders of the church, extended him the offer of fellowship and partnership. And just to, to track off on that for a second, it's these men, those leaders of the church, who the Lord calls and sets apart to guard the ministry and the doctrine of the church. The Lord calls and sets apart specific men to guard the ministry and the doctrine of the church. And, and, and we must follow and submit to those men. I say that understanding that, that I'm one of those men, and so this is not a blind call, hey, follow me, hey, follow Clark and me. But this is the truth of Scripture. It was those men who led the church that were entrusted by the church and called to be accountable to God to guard the partnerships of this church. And that is no light responsibility. And we as a church, and I include all of us, myself as well, when those decisions are made, we must follow. We must stick to those things, and we must support those who, who are making those decisions. We must strive to, to do all of our duties. Um, this, does not, this does not abdicate the church body from these duties. We all have a responsibility to hold to the truth. We all have a responsibility to make sure that the truth is taught and preached and proclaimed out in the community, that we do not trail off on, on any sort or any form of false doctrine or false religion or any type of error. We all are called by the Lord to join together with mutual accountability to ensure that we continue to walk the straight and narrow path of the truth. So what was the grounds of this gospel ministry partnership? These leaders are in agreement. They, they see a fellow calling, a, a mutual calling of the Lord on each other's lives. They're in partnership. They're in fellowship with one another. Their lives and their doctrines are aligned, and as we see even in verse 10, they would even lead their ministries, their churches, to support the same issues. 
So in verse 10, Paul gives this final statement, and kind of on the surface, verse 10 almost seems like it doesn't fit in to the whole context of what's going on here until we consider the greater context of the times and the statement. Verse 10, Galatians 2, says, They didn't add anything to me. They said the gospel proclamation was what it should be, but they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So again, Paul said nothing was levied on him. No requirements, no change to his message was given. They were in complete agreement on the gospel and outworkings of the gospel. But they did have this one request. Paul, tell these churches that you plant to remember the poor. So ask yourself, who are the poor? What what are they talking about? What are they asking him to do? Well, the church in Jerusalem, it was a large church, but it was a church that faced great suffering church that faced great persecution. They were persecuted by the Romans. They were persecuted by the Jews in Jerusalem. Their, their land was in the middle of a great famine. And so, simply stated, those leaders said, tell these churches that you plant, that you form, to remember the poor. And we'll get into the scriptural backing of that in just a moment. But practically speaking, this early Jerusalem church, really they had it easy as far as how to apply this idea of joining our, our funds and our gifts and our blessings together to support the ministry and to support one another. Um, they, they were the only church. There, there was this one church, and it was likely a huge church, maybe upwards of twenty or 30,000 people even. And they came together, and, and they were just sharing, selling everything they had. They would give their money to the leadership of the church, and the leadership would distribute it as, um, as was needed and as was seen fit. You can go read Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 2 to see these things happening and what was going on with that. But they had it easy because they were the only church. There, there was no, nothing that they needed to understand other than, hey, your brother, your sister, your fellow church member is suffering and you're living in blessing, so you go support that brother or that sister. But now the gospel is spreading. Churches were being planted in many different areas, different regions, different, even on different continents, eventually. And so now was the, the time where they had to figure out how are we going to enjoin ourselves in ministry together, including this financial aspect. And I think the principle from Scripture that we can gather is that first we give to the local church, and then we as individuals and we as a church then can go broadly support our partnership of churches. How do we say that? How can we delineate that really easily? Well, we know the structure that the Lord has ordained and set up in churches. There are local autonomous churches, and we're to be a part of those. So we give to those, and as after we've faithfully given there, if you want to give more to another ministry, you, you are free to do so, but our calling is to support the local church here. And so the order of church's finances should be locally and then, and then spread out. And Romans 15 is helpful in understanding exactly, I think, how this should happen. What's the biblical principle at play? Romans 15, verses 26 and 27. There Paul writes, he says, For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. The Macedonians and the 
the people of Acacia are indebted to the saints at Jerusalem, even though they've already made this contribution. Why? He said, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, then they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. These other churches were indebted to the Jerusalem church because that was the the zero point, the, the ground zero for where the gospel started going out and being shared and spread. And Paul says they are indebted to love and to support that church because they have shared in this unimaginable spiritual blessing from the Jerusalem saints. So as we share in spiritual blessings of others, whether through these teaching ministries or the organization of church planning like like we do in Anchored in Truth or in other spiritual ways, we want to give and to support them as we're able. Now ask yourself, where does your greatest shared spiritual blessing come? Surely, friends, it comes in the local church, right? That, that That is the... pillar in the ground of where we get all of our spiritual nourishment, our spiritual blessing. So where does your primary giving go? To the local church. Now, I I look across the room and I see so many, probably every one of us in here, who have benefited from other ministries, ministries like Grace to You, Anchored in Truth, other churches, other Bible teachers, and as we share in the blessings of their ministries, the scriptural biblical principle is that we support them too as we were able. But firstly, our, our, our attention and our focus must come to the local church, firstly, primarily. But do note, however, as we consider this idea of church partnership and the idea of, of this monetary giving, it was the very last thing that Paul mentioned. These churches were not joining together for financial gain or financial security. They're joining together for the sake of the gospel, for the spread of the truth of God's word. They join together first in doctrine, then in mutual respect and understanding of one another's ministry, and then in fellowship, and then lastly in finances. So that's kind of like the gates or the doors to go through in church partnership. You must have your doctrine and your gospel right. If you get that, you enter through to the next door. You must have a mutual trust, a mutual understanding of a mutual calling to minister the gospel. When you have that, you enter through the next door. The next door is fellowship. If you're like-minded and in fellowship with one another, then you can enter through that door, and the next door you come to is this idea of, of financial giving, financial support for one another. So to summarize, to kind of zoom back out now as we close out this passage, we see that the battle for the gospel must be fought by local churches joining forces and standing for the gospel, proclaiming the truth and making war against every kind of falsehood. Proclaiming the gospel, making war against false teachers and their false teaching. The nature of this battle, friends, in a way is very individual. For each one of us must go out and stand firm against falsehood. No, no pastor, no preacher can control the minds of millions of Christians. Not even our favorite pastors and preachers can control the minds of millions and millions of people. The people who follow those people are typically not following those people because of, 
of themselves, but because of the truth that the Lord imparts from their ministry. So we must fight these battles in our own lives. Now then we ask the question, how does the believer fight spiritual battles? Surely, dear friends, these battles are fought and they're won within the confines and the brotherhood of the fellowship of the local church. As I said, these are individual battles, but we fight and win individual battles as a body working together. So we must fight for the truth and battle for the faith by fighting alongside of trusted and like-minded saints. We must prepare for these battles in a few simple but, but very broad ways. We must make use of the power and the accountability and the encouragement of the local church. We must put away sin. We must kill the flesh that remains so that we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. When we walk in sin, we quench the Spirit. His work within us is dulled because of the sin that we allow in our lives. We must clearly define our enemy. Those, our enemy is those who propagate false gospels, those who propagate things that are not true. And we must resist them. We must resist those untrue things and those deceitful people with all the strength that we can muster in the power and in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And there, then, dear friends, we must take up the truth of God's Word. We must take up the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the truth of God's Word. We must wield this sword as directed in Scripture. We must wield it faithfully. We must wield it fully. We must wield it by God's grace. We must wield it with great patience. And we must wield it always with a deep and abiding love, both for God and for others. So let us, dear friends, run this race together. Let us fight these battles and this war together. Let us run with perseverance. And we do that, friends, by fixing our eyes on Jesus every step of the way, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to our Savior, and because we want to honor him, we want to be like him, we stand firmly for what is right, what is true, and what is honorable. And dear friends, we must do that in the power of the Spirit, and we so plainly often know the power of the Spirit the most, the most clearly in our lives as we fight battles together. So let's stand together for the sake and for the glory of the Lord. Let's close in prayer.